You're listening to Science Drives and Wellness Steers. It's season two. I'm your host, Allie Diesenhouse-Kellner. I've been the clinical director of Magnificent Minds, a private school and therapy center for over a decade, and have been supporting teachers, therapists, and parents of spirited kiddos with complex needs for even longer. Think autism, ODD, OCD, trauma, anxiety, learning disabilities, Down syndrome. There's beauty and diversity, folks. Professionally, I'm a bit of an enigma with formal training in counseling psychology and applied behavior analysis. I don't fit neatly into a box. I combine my love for science with my connection to the pursuit of wellness and somehow make sense of worlds that to some may seem at odds. I'm a hippie at heart. I avoid pseudoscience, gluten, and bad vibes. I'm a political advocate and a passionate writer who often puts her foot in her mouth. I'm a sometimes frazzled, not always put together mom, boss lady, and wife who, despite knowing what I should do most of the time, finds myself winging it and trusting my intuition. If it strikes your fancy, you can find out more about my education and credentials at magnificentminds.ca. There, you can sign up for my newsletter and we can stay connected. Find me on Instagram at magminds and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Screenshot this episode, tag me, and share the love. If you're new here, welcome to the community. Hey parents, it is episode 10. I can hardly believe it. It is season two and we are diving into anxiety, COVID-19 and everything quarantine. I am so excited to talk to you guys today about something I'm really passionate about and that is anxiety and how it affects our lives. We are admittedly in one of the wildest times I've ever experienced and no doubt a time in history that will go down as one for the books. For better or worse, here we are and we're in it together. If you're staying socially connected, you're probably relying on online platforms even more than you ever have before. You may even be someone who thought, I'm never going to be spending that much time scrolling, liking and commenting just to feel connected. And yet we're all in this shared experience together where our only connection is virtual. Internet usage has gone way up and apps like TikTok and Instagram are busy. Even apps like Facebook, which had long since seen its heyday, are active again. People are finding new and creative ways to stay connected and businesses have no choice but to pivot and embrace everything technological. Other than the astronomical use of screen time, anyone else getting those weekly screen time usage reminders and gasping? Just me? Hopefully not. We have another thing in common globally, and that is that we are anxious. Whether we've always been anxious or this pandemic simply tipped the scale for us, here we are. While I wish I could spend a lot of this episode speculating about the connection between how much time we're spending consuming media and how anxious we are, I think that would be a bit misguided. There's no way we could possibly compare existing research to what we're experiencing now because this is frankly unprecedented. Those of us who struggle with anxiety on the regular are feeling familiar things, but there's no way to deny that we have way less distractions than we usually do in our regular lives when it comes to how we cope with our anxiety. And while those of us who are used to anxiety may be more comfortable in our anxious feelings because in a way there's a certain nostalgia to them, a lot of us are experiencing new things all around us. And those of us who have experienced anxiety before are old friends with anxiety. A lot of things have been new for us in this pandemic, but the anxiety, frankly, 
it's not new, it's familiar. Anxiety is an old friend. Not an old friend I wanna continue the relationship with, but an old friend, no less. For those of us who have had a long-standing relationship with anxiety over the course of our lives, you may be thinking, if you're like me, welcome, as you watch a massive percentage of the population drop into a life experience that we've been living for a very long time. And then there are others who, for lack of a better way to describe it, have dropped into our anxious normal without any predisposition, without any experience in this anxious lifestyle. These are people who are experiencing anxiety for the first time, completely unfamiliar to them. So on top of having this completely unfamiliar world experience going on around them, they're also experiencing higher rates of anxiety and stress than they ever have before. And because they've never experienced it like this before, they don't have those coping mechanisms that some of us may have developed over our lifespan. So what do we do? What do we do when we have these new feelings of anxiety that we've never experienced before? We've never had any experience in therapy because we've never had anxiety, never need to use, needed to use coping mechanisms the way we are now. Or what do we do if this, is, this anxiety is an old friend, one we're familiar with, but it's exacerbated by the fact that there's so much newness going on around us, our regular distractions or our regular coping mechanisms aren't working. Whenever I think about what do we do, I hear this internal dialogue and it sounds like my Jeep when my GPS is on, you know, when navigation is on on my GPS and I'm going the wrong way. I hear the words recalculating. That's what we essentially need to do. We need to recalculate. We need to decide a new route, a new way for coping with our normal. We need to use what we call in behavior science or in psychology, behavioral flexibility. We tend to default to behavior patterns that are habitual for us. We like things that are habit. We like things that are routine. Many of us use routine as a coping mechanism for anxiety. So it's no wonder that when our regular daily routines have been thrown off, our anxiety spikes. We tend to not like change. Routine being one of the ways we keep anxiety in check tends to validate that. How willing are you to acknowledge that what you're doing isn't working? That's what you need to think about. How willing are you to think about the way you have developed new patterns in this new normal and whether or not they are adaptive or helpful or maladaptive and unhelpful when it comes to mitigating your anxiety or frankly just your stress? Are you willing to move towards behavior change and are you willing to pivot or recalculate? In order to figure out all of that, in order to make some you know, behavior change goals for yourself or to establish some habits or some coping mechanisms that are going to help you work through these big feelings, you have to understand what do you want? What do you want as your outcome? You can't have behavior change without knowing where you're going. Whether that is, I wanna be happy, I wanna be relaxed, I want to be less stressed, I want to have better coping mechanisms, whatever it is that you want in terms of adapting to your new normal and coping with your higher levels of anxiety, you need to isolate that. You need to make that something at the forefront of your consciousness. You need to think about it. And it can't just be something so broad that there's no possible way for you to measure your progress. You need to isolate the one thing you want and you need to figure out from that how you're gonna get there. 
So let's say that what a lot of us really want is to be happy. And if you listen to episode nine, we dove into how oftentimes we can be a little misguided about what actually makes us happy. Um, The science of happiness is very interesting. So if you haven't heard episode nine, I suggest you do that after, or at least carve out a little self-care time for yourself and listen to that when you have a quiet moment, because I think you'll be surprised. So let's say happiness, that is something that we all want. Let's forget the fact that we may or may not be that great at figuring out what makes us happy. We'll leave that for another episode. You can go back to episode nine if you're curious now. So here's what I wanna do. Let's do a little exercise. So you are anxious, you want to be happy because that for you is a way that you can manage or replace your anxiousness with something more desirable, an experience for you that is going to be more fulfilling, more meaningful, better. So what can you do? So the first thing I want you to do right now is to close your eyes. I want you to ground yourself wherever you're sitting. So put your feet firmly on the floor, sit comfortably. You don't need to be sitting upright. You can be sitting any way that's comfy, lounging. If you're in the car, that's fine. Um, Think of a time that you were happy. And I want you to think of a life experience that you associate with that time that you were happy. So I want you to be specific. I don't want you to just say, um, you know, when I turned 30, I was really happy. I want you to remember the specific moment that you can say for sure you were happy. So maybe that was a segment in time on your wedding day, a particular moment in that day. So not when I got married, but let's say when I was walking down the aisle, holding my partner's hand for the first time as a newly married couple. So really, really hone in on that time. So when were you truly happy? I want you to take a minute and think about that. Once you have an image in your head of what that time was for you, I want you to sink into that moment. I want you to visualize yourself in the moment and think about the following. What do you see? What do you smell? What do you feel? What is all around you? What did it feel like? Thinking of all your senses to be in that moment of happiness. Feel all those feelings and then open your eyes. Hopefully from that experience, you can see that you can access the feelings of happiness even when you're stressed out. But how do you get there? How do you get to the feelings of happiness when you're incredibly stressed? There are a few ways you can do it. And one way that I really, really like to sink into that feeling of happiness is to do that exact exercise where you remember a happy moment and you sink into that feeling. And you'll notice that the feeling of that moment of happiness that you just sort of sunk back into will last with you. I don't know how long because it depends on the person, but it will last with you and it will, you'll carry it. And the more and more you access those moments of happiness and you can think back, you're actually providing your brain something else to focus on other than your anxiety. You're providing a replacement thought. And when it comes to behavior science, we call that an incompatible behavior. You cannot simultaneously be panicking about whatever it is that you were panicking about or that was causing you anxiety and also be visualizing and experiencing this happy moment or this experience that brings you joy. 
While you can't always control what's going on around you, you can control your responses and how you respond to the things that are going on around you that are not in your control. It's not simple. You may have guessed that already. Your mind has a hard time recognizing its own shortcomings. It has this tendency to fill in the gaps where it doesn't have all the information. It's why our thoughts can be powerful and all-consuming, especially anxious thoughts. Automatic negative thoughts, obsessive thoughts, overall unhelpful thoughts that do not help us restore our chill or our happiness. And while it may be true that our mind has a mind of its own, so to speak, we can use strategies that help us rewire how we think and at the very least develop new responses to unhelpful or anxious thoughts that pop in. I think one of the most difficult things about the experience of anxiety is that it's not always something you can pinpoint. If I had a dollar for every time someone asked, well, what's wrong? What are you anxious about? Let's talk about it. I think I'd be rich because the truth is that that question is often misguided because it's not about what it's about when it comes to anxiety. Well, today I'm obsessing over whether or not I have COVID. Yesterday was perseverating on whether or not I'd be able to pay my mortgage. And just an hour before that, I spiraled into worry over a conflict that happened at work between my boss and I six months ago. When your anxiety is turned on, it's not about something, it's about everything. And the very thing I was obsessed about yesterday, today doesn't even phase me. I can see how I was overcome with negative thoughts. I was catastrophizing, I was personalizing, I was falling into all the mind traps that I know exist, but when you're in it, it can be hard to see the light. While yesterday's worries about getting COVID-19 were obviously absurd, today I realize I've seen the light and I really should be focusing this anxiety on the conflict between my boss and I six months ago. That's where my time is better spent. When you're not in it, it actually seems absurd. When you're in it, it's real. It's your mind's ability to trick you. And frankly, your mind does not have the ability to tell the difference between real and perceived threat. Fight or flight mode, activate. Use all of this information when you're supporting someone else with anxiety as well, your partner or your kids. Just like with hindsight, some of our own worries seem almost comical. It can be tempting to cast the worries of others in the same light. It can be tempting to tell others, or yourself even, to snap out of it, but that's about validating and and as helpful as telling someone to just relax. In the history of existence, no one has ever relaxed from being told, just relax. In fact, if you're like me, it just pisses you off, and then you get to add anger to the cocktail of strong emotions and somatic symptoms you're experiencing. The somatic symptoms of anxiety or the physical manifestations of your anxiety tend to extend beyond the obvious and tend to be very eye-opening and insightful for those who don't understand how overwhelming and how consuming anxiety can be. And while one way we can take control of our anxiety is by exercising or getting active, physically moving, there is a surprising overlap between the physical sensations experienced during cardio or during movement or during exercise of any kind and what is experienced during the onset of panic or general anxiety. For example, in both exercise and in panic and anxiety, you may experience shortness of breath, 
sweating, flushness to the face, mind racing, lightheadedness, all things that otherwise signal that an anxiety attack is coming to your brain could be brought on by something that is designed to decrease the likelihood of anxiety exercise. It's actually fascinating and it's interesting because there's a lot of research that says that individuals who experience panic or who have experience with anxiety may actually avoid physical activity and exercise because it brings about so many familiar symptoms of anxiety and that can be really triggering especially if you're someone who's had anxiety long enough that you recognize those precursor signs to anxiety or to panic and as soon as you notice those precursor signs you have coping mechanisms you usually go to or on the other hand you spiral into more worry because that can happen too you start to notice those early indicators that you're getting anxious you start thinking about your anxiety you start perseverating in your worrying thoughts tend to spiral and spike, and lo and behold, you've actually brought on more panic or anxiety than you would have had. The research also says that if you, as somebody with anxiety or panic, can push through those feelings uh, that occur initially when you're exercising that mimic your feelings of anxiety and you can just get through it, you will have better outcomes. Exercise is a known way to reduce the occurrence of anxiety. It helps regulate you, it helps balance you, it helps you feel good. People who experience panic may forego a workout. To me, that is fascinating and completely makes sense because the feelings of panic as it's starting to come on can be really frightening. The other thing that I think is really fascinating about that is that panic is really out of our control when it happens. And anxiety is something that's really outside of of our control. We can't really necessarily control whether or not we have an anxious response to something and all of the feelings that go with it. But if you could bring about all of the feelings of anxiety that make you fearful and you could habituate to them so that you become used to them and they don't cause those, you know, that spiral of thoughts, they don't cause you to become more anxious, that is an amount of control that you didn't have before that you're able to gain. And that is really, really neat, especially when you consider that a lot of our anxiety comes from this lack of control. It's interesting as well because something I've experienced a lot in my practice, especially with kids who struggle with emotion regulation and it's applicable for adults as well, but I see it more in kids because that's who I see more frequently when it comes to managing these big emotions. What I find is that when anxiety turns on and is you're, tr- you're triggered by something, you tend to have this escalation continuum that you slowly climb. And it can be pretty predictable for some people once you start to see the, the escalation occur over time, you'll see patterns. And you can essentially map out this escalation continuum in yourself or in others. And you tend to start to see these patterns where certain behaviors occur contingent on other behaviors and the, you know once you hit another level of escalation it activates a whole another level of you know somatic or physical symptoms and then once you hit that next level that activates another level of you know somatic symptoms and also behavioral responses that are conditioned that we have learned as a way to cope with our anxiety and for some of us those behaviors that we have learned over time are not the most adaptive you know for kids and for adults it may include you know getting aggressive, getting angry, lashing out, um, or becoming withdrawn, becoming, you know, 
um, isolated, those kinds of things. And once you can map out your level, your levels of escalation, you can start to see these patterns. And what can happen is people don't develop the necessary coping mechanisms to combat their feelings of anxiety and their various emotional escalation levels. And they actually need to hit their peak escalation in order to regulate. Because what happens is once you reach your peak level of escalation, whatever that is for you, there's it's often associated with you know, really high levels of adrenaline because it's that fight or flight. So you might start your escalation continuum in a sort of flight mentality where you're just avoiding and you have low levels of avoidance behavior where you're just sort of avoiding the trigger or you're isolating or you're not speaking or you're withdrawn or whatever it is. And as you climb your escalation continuum, your behaviors often become more intense. And you find that once you hit that peak where you're, you know, you might be in fight mentality at that point, your adrenaline is soaring, your adrenaline spikes. And then after your adrenaline spikes, you're able to come back down the other side. And what I see with kids is when there are high levels of, of uh, difficulty with emotion regulation and they climb that escalation continuum consistently and they reach the top, they aren't actually able to regulate on their own until they reach the peak. And what we really want is to avoid that full-blown panic or that peak or whatever it looks like for you. For some kids, it's aggression. It's tearing your room apart. It might be flight. It might be like physically running out of the room. Um, it might be, for you, it might be sobbing. It might be whatever it is that's your peak level of escalation when you're like a 10 out of 10 on your anxiety scale. And we want to get to a point where we've developed the coping mechanisms along the way to both recognize our levels of escalation and respond to them uh, in a helpful, not unhelpful way. And the way that we do that is by number one, becoming aware of them, of course. Um, and number two, um, developing coping mechanisms that respond to each level of escalation. So what I might do to cope with a low level feeling of anxiety, you know, a bit of, you know, maybe being on edge might be yoga or breath work. Whereas what I might do if I'm, you know, in, in sort of a high level of escalation for myself, if I'm really peaking, if I'm, you know, in the midst of a panic attack, I probably wouldn't be able to focus on following somebody else's movements and doing yoga. I probably wouldn't be able to, uh, you know, focus on something else that brings me joy, like writing or, or painting or something else that is a coping mechanism for me. Um, so that's important as well, just to realize that wherever you are on your level of anxiety is going to correspond with a different coping mechanism. Um, hopefully, though, what we do is we develop behavior patterns in our day that actually prevent us from ever getting to that escalated point. Um, they prevent us from ever getting to even a low level of anxiety. And if we can put practices into our day-to-day -day that help us stay at our baseline, then we are in a much better place when it comes to controlling the variables that are otherwise outside of our control. So what are some strategies? So for me, we've been in isolation. We are you know, right in the thick of COVID-19. So the regular coping mechanisms that I have are not all available to me because you know, I can't leave the house as readily as I want to. Um, I can maybe go for a walk, but that's about it. So some things that I have been implementing that have been helpful for me are um, guided visualization. So I love to start my day with a guided visualization. And what I do, and by the way, this is also a good way to end your day if you're feeling like your head is, is spiraling a little bit before you're going to sleep. And what you do for this is you simply envision yourself going through the motions of a perfect day. If you were to have a perfect day from the moment that you open your eyes, what would you be doing? And the idea is that you are going into 
quite a bit of detail. You're experiencing all the experiences that you would experience if you were in that moment, um, in that exact in that exact time that you're visualizing it. You, it's sort of like a meditation. It's where you are mindful of where you are. You turn off all other thoughts, and then you really just put all of your energy into visualizing yourself in this perfect day, whatever that looks like for you. It could be a work day, it could be a weekend, it really doesn't matter. Everything goes perfect and you visualize that from wake up to bed. Um, you can also modify that. You can visualize yourself doing something that you love. Maybe it's not a full day. Maybe that's ambitious for you and you can't possibly dive into that because it would, you, know, you don't have that much time or that much commitment. Um, you can visualize yourself doing something that you love to do and visualizing everything going right. And the idea is that you're focusing on all of the good things that could happen and you're putting yourself in that gratitude mindset. So the other thing that's been really helpful for me is daily movement. Um, not cardio, if I'm being perfectly honest. I am, at this point of recording, um, just about eight weeks postpartum. Cardio for me is not even um, on my radar. I am nowhere near ready to engage in cardio, but moving every day has been a game changer for me when it comes to my mental health. And I have a stark contrast to when I was in weeks one to six of being postpartum and I wasn't able to really do a lot of physical movement because that was sort of what was told to me by the doctors, you know, that that's part of the recovery process after a C-section is you, you really need to let your body heal. And for me, movement wasn't in the cards at that point. Um, but as soon as it was, as soon as I got the clear, that was something that I really committed to. And it doesn't necessarily need to be something that's really overwhelming or really daunting if um, you're not somebody who's used to exercising. It can be very low impact. I've been doing yoga. I've been doing um, like really free things on the internet. I've been doing um, live sessions with yoga teachers, YouTube videos, completely at my own pace. I've been doing um, lunges in my house, holding my newborn, you know, a little weight. Absolutely nothing that requires a huge time commitment, but something that after I feel so much better having done. Um, the other thing that has been really helpful for me is limiting my news intake. I have found that it is so easy to get lost in the news and a lot of the time there's not that much new being reported and I also know that if something is really drastic and breaking it's going to be on all the news channels and I will catch it in that five minutes that I'm spending on the news a day and I'm not allowing myself to really you know, dig deep and really just become overwhelmed by everything that's going on in the world around me. Um, that was a really a really powerful shift for me because I found I was spending a lot of time reading because I like to feel like I know what's going on, but it wasn't doing anything for me in terms of my anxiety. It was really just sort of winding me up and then I was having a hard time winding down. The other thing um, in terms of limiting news intake is also limiting social media content. I think we have a tendency to be passive consumers when it comes to our media content and I think media social media in particular can be very beneficial and very empowering but it can also be very difficult and very um, all-consuming so I think as long as you're mindful and you are editing and you're being a, a you know an active not a passive consumer uh, I think I think you'll be much better off I think you want to go through your social media feed and you want to unfollow or mute anybody who's you know posts or whose you know thoughts are are triggering for you and that might change over the course of you know the next couple of weeks and that's okay but allow yourself that grace to not have to be exposed to things that are not making you feel good about yourself if there is somebody that you keep comparing yourself to whose life seems so perfect who 
seems to have it all together and you know you're feeling like you're not measuring up then mute them you don't have to you don't have to unfollow you can unfollow um, but you can mute them or you can unfollow them and you don't have to have that as part of what you absorb day to day the other thing that's been really powerful and, and honestly transformational for me is breath work. And I think if you don't know what breath work is, I'm nowhere near an expert and I'm not really able to dig deep into what it is. Um, but what I do know is that it is various breathing activities and exercises that really make you mindful and present in the moment. And personally, uh, I experienced it for the first time through um, Kundalini Yoga, which uses a lot of breath work strategies and um, tactics in terms of you know its processes and it's been almost game changing for me like it's really it you feel at the end of it you feel almost euphoric like it's very hard to describe what it feels like after you do breath work but I just find that I am so much more grounded I am so much more alert and energized and it's not really something I can quantify but it's been something that's been incredibly incredibly powerful and again almost transformational for me um so those are the things that have been so so helpful for me and you can do absolutely whatever is going to be helpful for you and i think it's about using those kinds of activities and exercises proactively not reactively so you want to be embedding opportunities into your day to do this and i mean like let me just sort of say before anybody says there's no way that they can do it because of time I have three kids at home one of them is a newborn two of them are under five okay so I hear you on being super busy and I hear you on you know needing to get work done because I'm also working from home but none of this requires a huge time commitment if you have five to seven minutes to dedicate to any one of these things a few times a day then you will be in a much better place. Just start with one if you need to, if the rest seems too daunting. Um, start with one, dedicate five minutes. Trust me, I promise you that if you dedicate this time to these proactive strategies to manage your anxiety, you will gain time on the other side because you will be less anxious and less foggy and less lost in thought. And as a result, you will be so much more productive. And frankly, never mind productivity, you will be so much more regulated. And that right now, when we are in this time of crisis and global pandemic, that is exactly what we should all be striving for. So I'd be super, super psyched to know if you tried any of this. If you like this episode, um, screenshot it, tag me on Instagram. I love to have dialogue about what I'm talking about. This is like such a one-sided um, conversation, just me, and I don't like to hear myself talk that much. So I would be so down to have a chat with you via Instagram, DM. You can find me at magminds, M-A-G-M-I-N-D-S. I would be so psyched to chat. Thank you so much for spending 30 minutes with me to unpack COVID-19, anxiety, and all things antecedent and proactive strategies. It's been awesome. Thanks for hanging out. Thanks for listening to another episode of Science Drives Wellness Steers. It's been amazing hanging out with you, and I am so grateful for your willingness to let me in. If you like this episode, don't forget to leave a rating. I'm a behaviorist, remember, and I'm all about that reinforcement and that data. Until next time, stay well and stay grounded.